We are blessed to live in a country who just celebrated a very significant holiday. We're blessed to live in a country who's in its inception since its very beginning gave us the opportunity and the freedom to respond to someone who says, give me Jesus. We have a sweet, sweet privilege to be able to tell others about Jesus without fear of persecution, without fear of imprisonment, without fear that our families are in danger. And I know that some of you have grown up in those contexts and you have faced that devil in the face and you have stood up anyway. And I praise Jesus for that thing that he's done through you, that witness. Let's pray. Holy Jesus, at this very hour and in this very moment, that is our sole request. It is our soul's desire. Give me Jesus. Hide me behind the cross and allow him to shine through. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So um, I really don't have really pretty shoes. Um, I, I have this colleague that I work with, and she loves shoes. I mean, every day she comes, and she's got just the most beautiful, amazing shoes to match that most very specific dress or blouse or whatever it is. It's just all well put together. And, and it's great. I'm really happy for her to invest that kind of time and energy into her shoes because she has fun with it. I, on the other hand, um, not so much fun. I, I, I want to keep life simple and and I would probably do a really bad job pairing shoes with the right outfit. So for all of you young men, young women, old men, old women, and everything in between who can do amazing shoes, God bless you. And I hope you represent the rest of us really, really, really well. Um, if it was up to me, to be honest, I would be like this, like, all of the time. Um, I've often told in places where they have voluntary dress codes, if it wasn't for the voluntary dress code you're asking me to volunteer to keep, um, I would be in shorts and sandals every day of the week, maybe two different pairs on Monday, and even through the winter. I remember being a student here and wearing shorts in December and still wearing my sandals. And it's just all is right with the world if you pretend in your head that you still live in the Caribbean. It just, it makes sense of so much chaos. Um, shoes, shoes are interesting, interesting things. Most of us have them and most of them, most of us, it's good that we, that we wear them. Um, one of the things that I learned when I started doing visitations as a pastor is that it's really important to have good hygiene. I mean, my mother had told me about that, and my wife had told me about that, but in a different way it became more significant because when you go to certain people's homes, and if you come to my house, it's the same way, 
Um, what do they ask you to take off at the door? Take off your shoes. So you just want to make sure you bathed that day, that you're wearing clean socks. It's the first time you've worn them. Because you want to represent some really good hygiene. But why do we make such a big deal about a specific pair of shoes in the Bible? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. You're joining us this morning, maybe for the first time, so let me tell you where it is that you've arrived. You're at Pioneer Memorial Church, and this summer we're going through a series called Following Jesus, the Daily Grind. So each of the pastors that's preached so far this summer has done a theme, a story, a sermon on one of the disciples and how they follow Jesus in their everyday life. This morning's message, we're going to be looking at three different Stories. We're going to look at the story of Moses, and our disciple for today is Philip, and we're going to end up with the world-famous Bill Gates. Yes, they all have something in common. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. For the last 40 years... This is Moses' everyday life. This is what he does. He tends flock. He tends sheep. This is his routine. This is the most common thing that he does, is he takes care of the sheep. Now, I'm looking around, and I know some of you quite well, and I know there's two kinds of people. There's, like, people who live by the rule of habit, and then there's others who live by the rule of chaos theory which means that when people look in, it looks like it's all craziness, but there really is like a pattern. You are maybe, many of you, like habit people. Everything you do is quite routine. So every morning, you get up at exactly the same time, right? 6 a.m., you are up. You are up, Adam. The first thing you do, you say your prayers, you have your devotional, For however long you do that, the next thing you do is you get out of bed, you drink your two cups of water, and then you go out for your jog, which is always exactly 45 minutes, right? Always. I mean, you have got this thing down to a science. 45 minutes, you come back, you have your oatmeal, two hard-boiled eggs minus the yolk. You get showered, you get dressed, you get in the car, you arrive at the office at exactly 8.45 a.m. When you get to your office, you go in, you grab your glass, you go to the drinking fountain, you fill your glass with uh, water, you go back to your office, you sit down, and you're ready to start your day at precisely 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., computer comes on, start going through all of your emails, and that's what you do for the next 45 minutes is you plan how you fit all these to-dos in your pre-prescribed, in your prescribed schedule for the day. So you work all morning. On Mondays at noon, you go to Caitlin's. On Tuesdays at noon, you go to Avani's. On Wednesdays, you pack a lunch and go to Love Creek Nature Center to have some quiet time. On Thursdays at noon, you go home. And on this particular Thursday, you take an extra 30-minute siesta. The week is getting long. After you have lunch, you come back, you work for another four hours and 45 minutes, you start to shut everything down at 4.45, 5 p.m., you're home. Wow, 
That was a great day. But it's not over. 5 p.m., you get home, you get comfortable, you put your home clothes on, you get everything manicured. Perhaps this is the Tuesday when you mow the lawn. Perhaps this is the Thursday when you have that special activity where you volunteer at the community service center, etc. You have supper at 6.30 with your family. You call Bob, Joe, and Sue at 7.30. And by 9 o'clock, you're ready to settle back in. This is your day. And God bless you for your day that you happen to have every day. This is your common experience. Now, there's others of us who can't live that way at all. It's just, we're not wired. We're more Caribbean, like I like to say. You just go with the flow of the ocean, and just whatever, wherever the sea breeze leads you, then, then that's, where, that's where you go. And so, but it's still, it's still your routine. It's still your routine. It's your common, everyday routine. That's what Moses is doing on this day. He's just doing his routine. He's tending his sheep. This is what he's been doing for many, many years. Why would anything different happen today? Continue reading on verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now, if you're one of these like chaos theory kind of living style, this is the day you live for. You just, what? Something unexpected has happened? And you go for it and you, and you run and you're just excited. If you're more of the routine person, it's very calculated. You consider, you evaluate. Well, if I do this, I may make it home at 5.05. That could be a real problem. But you know, I will go. I will go and look at this thing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God shows up. Unexpected. You weren't necessarily looking for him. You were just doing your everyday life. You were just going through your routine. And God comes and shows up and calls your name. Moses, Moses. What does Moses say? Here I am. God says in verse 5, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There's one thing that I think we can all agree on. The God that we serve is a holy God, amen? Is a distinct God. There's no one like him. There's nothing you can compare him to. And just when you think that you figured it out, figured him out, guess what happens? He shows you something new, something different. He changes the rhythm. He changes his routine. And all of a sudden, the grace that you thought was so grand and so great is even bigger and grander than the grace that you knew. That's the God that we serve. He is not your common God. He's not your everyday, run-of-the-mill kind of being. He's an holy God. 
He's an uncommon God. Something that you can't predict, but that you know is always true and the same. It's a unique paradox that we find in this being. He inserts himself in our lives when we least expect it. But he's always there. Moses is encountering an uncommon God. The most holy uncommon God. So when he approaches this space, this bush, this ground, God says to him, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Now you really have to ask yourself, what was wrong with those sandals? Were they not kosher? Were they not blessed? Did they have Egyptian material? Were the materials used there blessed by heathen gods? Is there something wrong with the sandals? Is there something wrong with the fabric? What's wrong with the sandals? Did, did, did God need Moses to connect with the ground to experience some like unique energy, some unique energy transference from the ground right into Moses? Is that what happened? No. This is a symbol. This is a symbol that God used to remind Moses, listen, buddy, this is not any ordinary space. This is not any common space. This is not any space that you would normally run into. This space, because I'm here, is special space. This space, because I'm here and I'm doing something very unique and extraordinary, is a unique, special, extraordinary space. It's distinct. This space is peculiar. It has a special purpose because I'm here. So this uncommon God introduces Moses to this uncommon ground. And in order for Moses to remember where he was, he says to Moses, Moses, listen, I'm going to give you a little tool. I'm going to give you this symbol. Take off your sandals. And right when you feel those pebbles in your, in your feet and it hurts a little bit, that's your reminder. This is uncommon ground because this uncommon God is residing here. So take off your sandals. Oftentimes, right now, you'll see, like our praise leaders did this morning, you'll see uh, this generation walking around barefoot, doing praise barefoot, and it's a symbol. It's a symbol that they've utilized that they're doing something special. This is not just their typical song service. This is not just some typical song. This is a unique time. This is a unique song, and we want to we recognize it. We want to feel it in our feet. We want to be reminded, and we want to show you to be reminded that this is a special time. So, I'm instituting a new policy right here, right now. Whenever you walk into the sanctuary, take your shoes off. Only if you've washed that day. Just kidding. That has to go through the board. <laughs> Hasn't gone through due process just yet. So, we continue reading. This uncommon God introduces Moses has this encounter with Moses and introduces to him this idea of uncommon ground. That where God is, the things that surround that, that space where God is, is also has that unique attribute of being holy and distinct. Reading on in verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, not the parasites, 
Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What? Where did this come from? Up until this moment, this entire passage, this entire experience has been about who? It's been about God, an uncommon God. In fact, when God introduces himself in a very miraculous way, in a very unique and distinct way, and begins to talk, he identifies himself and he says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. And he goes on to say, and I hear my people crying, and I want to take care of my people, so I'm going to send you. This entire encounter has nothing to do about who Moses is, other than that Moses has stepped on uncommon ground. This entire experience is about God, this uncommon God who has his burden for his people. And Moses then asks the question, and he says, who am I? Moses, this is not about who you are. This is about my heart. This is about my need to be near to my people and hearing their pain, hearing them crying out because I want to be there. I want to relieve them. I want to let them go. I want to set them free. I want to send them to the promised land where there is milk and honey. I want to give them a better future than the present that they have. But Moses makes it about him. It's not about Moses. It's about God and God's love for his people. So God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Three times in God's response, he identifies who he is. He is I am. He says to Moses, I am. In other words, I am with you. I am with you. I am the God who is always there. I am. I am the God of Father uh, of I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. I was their God. I am your God, and I will be the God for the generations to come. Moses is introduced to this uncommon God and to this uncommon ground where he cohabitates, and he has God press on him this uncommon mission to go bring his people. When you have those three combinations present, an uncommon God with uncommon grounds sent on an, and an individual sent on an uncommon mission, guess who this is about? Is it about the person that's being sent? No. Is it about the spokesperson? No. Is it about the people with the right title? No. It's about God. It's about the God who says, I am. 
It's about the God who says, I'm always present. I'm always here, and I'm going to take you to the promised land. Folks, when you consider where we are, you have to ask yourself those three questions. Who do we serve? An uncommon God. My question to you, is God here? Does God occupy this space? Is he the king of all this acreage that surrounds us? Is he the king of these three campuses, Andrews University, Andrews Academy, Ruth Murdoch? Is he the king of Mars Elementary? Is he the kings of the high school here? Is he the king of this community? Is he here? He is. If that uncommon God is here, what does that make this space? Uncommon grounds. We serve an awesome God. We worship an awesome God. And he occupies this space. And he walks with us wherever it is that we go. I've noticed as I've lived in this community over the years that we have a walking community. Everywhere you go, there are people walking to and fro. It could be at 4.30 in the morning. It could be at 1 a.m. with or without the proper safety vestments. If you're walking at night, please, for us young people, wear those like highly bright, glow-in-the-dark kind of stuff. Along with us walking to and fro, our God is walking to and fro. He walks down these aisles. He, he walks across campus. He's praying in, in, in Newbold. He's praying in the Ad building. He's, he's, he's there. He's, he's our advocate. Jesus is there. He's our advocate. And he's, and he's advocating for us because he wants to do something special. This is, this is holy ground. And he's pressed upon us a very holy mission. He's pressed upon us a unique thing. We want to be the kind of place that after students have cycled through here, when they look back, not only are they known for their academic excellence, not only are they known for their professional prowess, but they're also known for their unwavering, faithful commitment to Jesus Christ. This is uncommon ground. It's uncommon because God is here, but it's also uncommon because of its unique mission. Its unique mission to equip people for eternity. Let's fast forward to Philip. Many of us are faced in the similar predicament as Philip. We'll go to John. It's in the Gospels, second half of the Bible. John chapter 1. Uh, chapter one. Turn with your Bibles there. John chapter 1, and we're going to read a, a healthy portion of Scripture because it happen, there's so many things that happen straight away. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, they, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. 
The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John the Baptist connects two of his disciples to Jesus, and they follow him. Andrew goes immediately to the person that he knows after he meets Jesus and tells him, you have to come check this guy out. This is the one. This is Jesus. So he goes and he grabs his brother. Jesus confronts Philip and says, follow me. Philip, his reaction in that moment is to go tell the person that he's been studying and praying with because he's been seeking and wanting to know when this Christ is going to come. So Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, I found him. He's here. And he's from Nazareth. Come, come check it out. The minute that these guys encounter Jesus Christ, their impulse, their impulse is to connect, to connect others with Jesus Christ himself. This is what it says in Desire of Ages as it, she reflects on this passage. She says, These examples should teach us the importance of personal effort, of making direct appeal to our strangers. Is that what it says? No. To our kindred, our friends and neighbors. There are those who for a lifetime have professed to be acquainted with Christ, yet who have never made a personal effort to bring even one soul to the Savior. All who are consecrated to God will be channels of light. God makes them his agents to communicate to others the riches of his grace. His promise, I will make them and I will make them and the places around about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessings. We have 42 days to go, folks, till the school year begins. And many of you have already joined us in this appeal to be praying, praying that God pour out His Spirit on this campus. Our work is simple. Get to know the kids and tell them about Jesus. When we do that, when we marry those, our prayers with that uncommon mission that we have, there's only, what, 10, 11 other campuses in the North American division? This is a unique place. This is a unique opportunity. And God has placed us here by His hand. This uncommon God confronted us in our lives and brought us to these uncommon grounds because He intends to have an uncommon mission fulfilled through us. 
And he says that if we do this work, if we do this personal effort, we combine it with prayer, it says, I will make them in the places around about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in the seasons. There shall be showers of blessings. How many of you want that, that Holy Spirit just to rain down? Just to come down on this place and change it forever. To change, not, hey, and you change this place. You, you, you transform, and God does his holy work. And his unique work here, guess what happens? That holy work and that unique presence is felt everywhere. 3,500 students cycling through here every single year. Not to mention, not to mention the unique opportunity that we have with those kids who are growing up right here right now. Have you read this book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers? Anybody? It's a great book. It talks about individuals, talks about communities that are confronted with unique opportunities. In other words, they've looked at some of the most successful people and they've tried to analyze what is it that makes this person stand out? What is it that makes them unique? Is it genetics? Is it their education? Is it their culture? What is it? And they found out and they discovered this amazing fact that some of the most unique people in our world today had what they called outlier influences. Before we get to that, I want to talk to you about 10,000 hours, okay? 10,000 hours. There's a special study done by the psychologist Kay Anderson uh, Erickson at Berlin's Academy of Music. They took all of their violin players, okay? This is found in the book Outliers. They took all of their violin players, and they asked them a really simple but provocative question. They said, over the course of your entire career, ever since you first picked up the violin, how many hours have you practiced? All right? So all the professors got together. Before they got the responses, all the professors got together, and they categorized these violin students into three different groups. Group one was those individuals who were going to be world-class soloists. They were going to be experts. They were going to be recognized. They were going to be singing or playing in Carnegie. They were going to be everywhere. That's group number one. Group number two are those individuals who are merely good. Not world-class, but good. And group three, those individuals who were, gonna, who were on a path to be music teachers. So they had those three different groups. And this is what they discovered. All, all the people in those groups started playing violin at about the same time. Five years, six years of age. And when they first started, they played two to three hours every week. Well, this is what happened with group one. Here's how group one stood, stood out. By the time they were age eight, they were practicing six hours a week. By the time they were 12, they practiced eight hours a week. By the time they were 14, they practiced 16 hours a week. And by the time they were 20, they practiced 20 or 30 hours a week. Their, their, their investment was entirely in this discipline. They discovered that with this group one, the world-class soloist these violin players had invested over 10,000 hours in their discipline. And that's the thing that made them distinct. Group two, 8,000 hours. And group three, the music teachers, 4,000 hours. The thing that set them apart, it wasn't education, it wasn't ethnicity, it wasn't any of those things. It was the amount of time that they invested in their discipline. 10,000-hour rule. This is, 
This is what they have to say about the study. The emerging picture from such studies is that 10,000 hours of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert in anything, writes the neurologist Daniel Levitin. He goes on to say, in study after study of composers, basketball players, fiction writers, ice skaters, concert pianists, chess players, master criminals, and what have you, this number comes up again and again. We have young people growing up in this community, coming to our cradle world class. What if we made sure they invested 10,000 hours in being disciples of Jesus Christ by the time they were 18? Could you imagine? If they became experts, they became masters in following Jesus. 10,000 hours learning how to study the Bible spending time in devotion, doing outreach, praying, fellowshipping. They would go out. <laughs> they would go out to the rest of the world and they would be experts in drawing other people to Jesus Christ. They don't even have to be ministers. Imagine that. They come here, they study biology, they study pre-law, they study med tech, nursing, nutrition. But before they've even studied, even studied, started studying those things, They've had 10,000 hours. We can do it. We can do it. We can invest in our young people in that way. We can do it. 10,000 hours. Andrews University, Pioneer Memorial Church, this campus, this community, has the opportunity to be an outlier, has an opportunity to be that one thing, that influencing thing, that makes the greatest difference between those who have failed in their walk with Jesus Christ and those who have excelled in their walk with Jesus Christ. In the story, in the book, it tells us the story of Bill Gates. And with Bill Gates, what's so interesting about his story and how he became successful is that it had everything to do with proximity, how close he was to certain things. Here's nine things about Bill Gates. Bill Gates got sent to Lakeside High School. It had a computer. In 1968, how many of you were in high school in 1968? Was there computers there? Most likely not. Very new technology, very expensive. He went to Lakeside High School, which had a computer. There, the mothers of Lakeside, point number two, had enough money to pay for the school's computer fees. So money wasn't a hindrance. Three, when the money ran out, one of the parents happened to work at C-Cubed, which happened to need someone to check its codes on the weekends, which also happened to not care if weekends turn into weeknights. So Bill Gates, you found him working at C-Cube, this 15, 16-year-old, weekends and nights, investing in his computer skills. Gates just happened to find out about ISI, Information Services Incorporated, and they just happened to need someone to work on their payroll software. This was all near where Bill Gates was living. He just happened to be born there. He was raised there, and all of these connections were being made because he was close to these spaces. Point number five, Gates happened to live within walking distance of the University of Washington, which had a computer center. The university, point six, happened to have free computer time between three in the morning and six in the morning. Guess where Bill Gates was at three in the morning? At the computer center. Next thing that happened, TRW, another major cutting edge computer firm, happened to call Bud Pembroke, which ran the computer center there at University of Washington. Pembroke knew two high school students who did amazing programming work. So he recommended those two high school students. And finally, Lakeside High School, 
in Bill's senior year let him take away his spring semester to go and work with this technology company. So he didn't have to go to school. By the time Bill was 19 years old, he had spent over 10,000 hours into computers. Just because he lived close to a place that had amazing things happening. It was the right time, it was the right place, he knew the right people. Folks, any young person that lives here, any young person that's growing up here now, has the opportunity to master the discipline of discipleship. We can be a part of that. We can be that outlier influence. Can you see it? Because you see, we serve an uncommon God. We serve an uncommon God who has created this very uncommon ground here. Very distinct, very special. Unlike anything else that you experience anywhere else. For a very uncommon mission. To save the world. By sharing the message of Jesus Christ. We need a new thing. It's time. We should expect it. We should be hungry for it. We need a new thing. We need this uncommon God to show up in a way that he's never shown up before. Pull out your Connect card. I invite you on the front, put your name and your email address. And there's a couple things that we can do as, to take a next step. First one is, I will share the uncommon God in my everyday, un, in my everyday common spaces. This week I was meeting with one of our students. We started talking about and planning for University Vespers, which happens here during the school year Friday nights at 7.30. And no, that wasn't a commercial. We started talking about this next year and what it is that we wanted to do. We were about halfway through our meeting. And then I realized, and she realized, we forgot to do something. We forgot to pray. We were just having a routine meeting, just cycling through our to-do list. We forgot to pray. And when I brought this up, I said, hey, Vimbo, we forgot to pray. She's like, yeah, we should pray. And I said, you know what? Let's pray and let's just take our time. It doesn't need to be a 30-second prayer. Let's just pray. And she's like, what, we need to rush? No, 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 not rush. Let's just take our time. You know what she says to me? She's like, really, we can take our time praying? I always feel really awkward because people just want to do these 30-second prayers. It's like, no, whatever comes, whatever's on your heart, let's just, God will make it up. God will make it up. We invest in this prayer time. He's going he's gonna to help us speed right through our agenda. So this is the commitment that I've made. And I hope you join me in this commitment. My work is here on this campus. Your work may be somewhere else. Off campus, you may be living in another city. You may not even be living in a very faith-friendly space. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray about how you can begin to insert that uncommon God in your common everyday life. What are the simple and unique and tangible ways that you can introduce him? Maybe you don't make it a habit to pray when you arrive at your desk. Maybe you start to do that. People will notice. People will notice that there's something different about what you're doing in your routine. It's not intrusive. It's your space. But they will see. 
you know what, every time when he comes in at 8.45 on the dot, he takes a few moments, he bows his head, and I think he's praying. Well, in my space, every committee meeting that I'm in, I'm going to be the weird, awkward one that says, you know, before we start, can we have a prayer? Folks, I know that we have our devotional life each and every day. You know, we have our prayer times, the private times in the morning. But what if we began to do uncommon things through the course of our everyday life? Just take a few moments and remember, we serve an uncommon God. We have an uncommon opportunity here to make a big difference. So if that's you, if you want to make that commitment, please, please join me in doing something different and changing the way that we work around here and wherever it is that you're living. Second is, I want to be an outlier influence to students this year. Invite me to a one-time focus group. If you want to talk about how you can have a meaningful, tangible, but simple impact in students' life, you can be that influence. You're one of these staff people that's got two or three students working for you, and you're wondering, how can I make a difference in their life? Hey, let's have a time. Let's talk about it. If you want to be invited to that meeting, please go ahead and mark that box. And finally, I will join in asking God every day to pour out His Spirit on me and this campus in preparation for the new year. I want to remind you they have this bookmark you can take out right on the back of your program if you want to join us in this prayer journey, 42 days until the school year begins. Let's invite this uncommon God to continue to habitate and to saturate this campus with His uncommon presence for this unique mission that we have. Deacons, please stand. Let's pray. Holy Father, we give ourselves entirely to you. We give everything that we have to you. Every moment of every day, every encounter that we have with individuals, with our family, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers. Lord, if, if there is a burning bush moment, help us to not pass it up. Help us to meet you daily. And as a result of meeting you daily, Lord, may our impulse for that day be to introduce other people to you. So, Lord, we submit ourselves and surrender everything for that holy cause, and that unique purpose of introducing you, others, to your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, as we collect now our tithes and offerings this morning, you know that they are set aside for a special purpose, to build your kingdom. So bless it and bless everything else that you've left under our stewardship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.